Hello, and welcome to the Space Coast Pet Podcast, the podcast for pets and the people who love them. Now, here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Roger Welton. Happy New Year, pet lovers, and welcome to the first episode, 2024, of the Space Coast Pet Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Roger Welton, aka Dr. Roger. Welcome to the first episode of 2024. Thank you so much for tuning in. I feel really good today. Just got back last night from a nice ski trip in Snowmass Mountain in Aspen, Colorado with my family and some uh, some friends and good uh, good way to recharge the batteries. Come back, appreciate my warm Florida weather. Uh, sometimes I, I complain about the heat in the summer, but I'd rather deal with the heat in the summer than a long season of winter. It's perfect for skiing, but once I'm done skiing, I am happy to be out of the cold. And uh, at any rate, I am back to uh, broadcasting for the year. I uh, will be back in my clinic tomorrow practicing veterinary medicine, the profession that I have loved for the past almost 22 years. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, today we're talking about top pet resolutions. Um, you know, these are resolutions that I think we as an industry, when I say industry, it means not just uh, the veterinary industry in terms of, you know, vets and clinics and technicians and hospitals, but also the wonderful people that bring their pets to us, um, other aspects of the industry, such as breeders breeding, grooming, and, and just the whole kitten caboodle all together, things that I feel we should all be striving for collectively. Um, some of them are going to be repeats. There are some situations or issues that seem to year in and year out never go away or even get worse, but do listen anyway because I might have a different perspective on that particular repeated item. I've been doing this episode for a long time since I believe 2010 I started doing this, um, but it always is a good way to get things off my chest and hopefully get everybody uh reset button and, and ready to do 2024 to the best of our collective ability. So before we dive into that, I have an email from Paula Q, my favorite groomer and one of my uh, regular listeners and contributors to the program. I always enjoy Paula's perspective. Uh, let's dive right into that. Also, Paula, as usual, your um, part of your email segues right into my first pet resolution, which you always have an uncanny ability in doing that. So here she, here we go. So uh, hi, Dr. Roger. <clears throat> I'm dropping in to wish you, your family, and your staff a very happy holiday season. I'm very behind in listening to the episodes, and I'm in a mad rush to catch up. I wanted to thank you for the shout out. I believe it was top breeder myths. Sadly, I think I'm coming to an end of my grooming career, and I'm making plans to phase out this time next year. My body is starting to feel the effects of 30 plus year career and the influx of quote doodling has fast-tracked all of it. <laughs> There's the segue. <laughs> um, I will continue to be a faithful listener, though, and will be sharing your episodes with my fellow dog and cat lovers. Have a very safe New Year and the best to you in 2024. Paula Q, quote, future private investigator, and the Corgi, uh, parentheses, future PI sidekick. And below that is a beautiful picture of her beautiful Corgi, in his Santa hat. And um, 
in honor of your listenership and your wonderful emails and your service to the industry as a groomer. Boy, that's hard work. I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, this image is going to be the image for this episode on the show page. So congratulations to Corgi, the future private investigator. So um, grooming is incredibly hard work. Um, I had a groomer in my cl my first clinic. She was with me for about seven or eight years. And I saw her back there grooming, you know, sometimes 15, 17 dogs a day. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you do this? Like, it is a physical job. It, uh, you know, I, you just don't realize how hard it is until you see it up close and personal. Most of, you know, I, my past experience was, oh, we would we would drop off our cocker spaniels. You know, they need re need regular grooming when I was growing up and drop them off and pick them up a few hours later and you show up and the groomers are all laughs and smiles and here's here's your Waldo and here's your Stanley or whoever our Cocker Spaniel du jour was at the time and they're wonderful and they're sweet and you just have no idea you think wow they just play with dogs all day long no they're doing unpleasant things to dogs that they don't like and they're going to react to it sometimes they're going to bite they're going to throw you they're going to uh, make your job very difficult it's not their fault um, sometimes as Paula has uh, pointed out there are some clients that have unrealistic expectations for what you could do with a particular hair coat. And, um, you know, it's uh, I more power to you, 30 plus years. Um, I, again, I want to thank you for your service. Grooming is so important. Uh, poor, poorly groomed dogs, uh, dogs that have hair in their eyes can cause corneal ulcers. Uh, dogs with mats in their hair are painful. They're unsanitary. Um, they cause skin infections. Um, just, just, just the hygiene in general, especially the groomers that brush the teeth and go that extra mile can be very helpful to maintaining dental health. I mean, the benefits to good grooming, are, it's just innumerable. And the local groomers that I really trust in my area, I, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for. And Paula, just seeing your knowledge and the intelligence of your posts, um, I'm sure, I'm sure you're as good as or even exceptional to one of those. So I really wish you the very best in your future. Uh, and um, again, I, I hope you do remain a, a regular listener and contributor because I always enjoy it. Um, good luck in the next phase of your life and I'm sure whatever it is, you're going to be amazing at it. So let's talk about doodles. <laughs> so um, my first resolution for all of you um, in the market for a new dog is can you give another breed a chance than a doodle? Does it have to be a doodle? Where did this happen that like everybody wants something crossed with a poodle? When did that become like the magic spice of canine ownership? It's just the oddest thing to me. I, I, I just, I don't get it. Um, the, the first time I ever saw a golden doodle, I thought it was an accidental cross, like a joke. Um, but no, it was actually, no, this is a, a legit breed. I got this from a breeder. This was like tenor. 12 years ago or something. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And I kind of uh, thought nothing of it. And then years go by, and especially in the last few years, everything's got to be crossed with a poodle. Whether it's the toy breeds crossed with the mini poodle or the big breeds crossed with the standard poodle. So you have the Bernadoodle, the Bernese Mountain Dog crossed with the standard poodle. Most people have heard of the Golden Noodle, Golden Retriever crossed with a standard poodle, Labradoodle, and so on and so forth. Then you get your little ones, the multi-poo, which is Maltese cross with mini poodle, Yorkie poo, she poo, 
Shih Tzu, Poodle, I can go on and on here. There are so many crosses that I've seen that I just could do a whole episode on. And I feel like some days all I'm seeing is a doodle of sorts. And that's, you know, I don't have problems with my, my, my doodle patients. It's just like, you know, wh why do we have to go there? What's, what's wrong with just a Labrador Retriever? What's wrong with just a Golden Retriever? What's wrong with a Shih Tzu? Or like one of my favorite little breed dogs, the Maltese. Like, why do you need to cross that with a poodle? I don't understand. Um, I'm going to tell you something, folks. The, the, the doodles are never going to be AKC certified. You'll never see them at Westminster, um, I'm sorry, AKC recognized. You'll never see them at Westminster Dog Show. Um, and the reason being is that there's no standardization. There's no conformational standard. There's no... We, we don't even really have um, established health uh, predispositions that we're going to be able to warn you about uh, in your early puppy visits. These are some of the things you should be looking for because we don't know. <laughs> There's a new doodle every time you turn your head. So uh, one of the most enjoyable things for me that, that I get to do is go, go to World Equestrian Center with my daughter. Um, and she uh, she's 13 year old, years old and she competes in Hunter Jumper. Um, it's Eng English Equestrian and it's out in Ocala, Florida. And any of you out there who have children that do this or do it yourselves, we, there, we always say that there's a lot of hurry up and wait involved with it. Uh, meaning that we hurry up to get ready, she gets all ready for the show or the event, then she has her event, and then her next event might not be for several hours. And then so on and so forth for the course of the weekend. And that's in the whole weekend she might have five or six events and there's a lot of a lot of idle time in between. It's a sprawling, beautiful campus. It's awesome. But one of the awesomest things about it, which makes me enjoy it even more, is that uh, a lot of the major dog show circuits come through there. They have these big, beautiful arenas where they have these dog shows. And so in my free time when my daughter's not eventing, I go over to the dog shows and it's just really incredible to see all these amazingly well-adjusted, beautiful, you know, perfect dogs. Just the, the, just the, the epitome of the standard of the breed um, it's really cool to see and and, and these handlers they, they clearly have a passion for their respective breeds these dogs are perfect they uh, you know you have hundreds of dogs in these arenas some are getting primped and groomed the dogs are just sitting there just not even moving don't even need a collar on to keep them there still there is no barking going on I'm like this is incredible so all of these dogs that are there have, you know, they're show level animals and so they have conformational standards, health standards, and all of the things that go into good breeding. Well, there is no standard for doodles. You know, they're just throwing these things together and creating their own quote-unquote breed and um, and that's okay. Everybody reserves a right to that. I just don't understand the fascination um, and the need to, to, to have a doodle. Let's give some love to our traditional breeds. Get a Yorkshire Terrier instead of a Yorkie Poo. How about go for the Maltese instead of the Malty Poo? That creates expectations for me as a veterinarian as to um, health concerns that we can, can see in these certain breeds. It also gives us consistency in their temperaments. Back to the Maltese, one of my favorite little dogs because um, toy breed dogs can be a lot of fun and they're you know, great little companions, but at the same time, not all of them are very patient with small children. Well, Maltese tend to be patient with households with, with small children, especially if the owners are responsible and are you know teaching and training their children and how to properly handle a dog. And so 
Um, you spike it with the poo, um, may not be the case. Many poodles are not as patient with children. So what's going to come out in that multi-poo? Well, we don't know. It could be a little bit more poodle, could be a little bit more Maltese, could be a little bit both. Maybe it's neither. <laughs> I've seen I've seen doodles that act, behave, and have health concerns that are not unique to either breed. So um, that's my first wish for 2024 is less doodling. You know, there's so many other options out there, and you're spending a fortune on essentially a mutt. Okay, no offense to the doodle owners out there. I have a lot of doodle patients that I love. Um, so please don't take offense to that. I just think that um, we're getting a little out of, out of hand there. So my next resolution has been mentioned before. I talk about them frequently, none other than breeders. So please stop taking medical advice from your breeder over that of your veterinarian. 99.9% .9 of breeders don't know anything. <laughs> they just have the ability to put two dogs together, have them procreate, produce some puppies, and then give you their quote-unquote opinions, meanwhile charging you several thousands of dollars for these dogs. So, um, oh, by the way, the same applies to cats. I just don't see as many pure breed cats as I do uh, uh, dogs. Well, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. I don't see as many bred cats as I see bred dogs. Most cats that I see have been adopted from a shelter, like found in a dumpster or something like that. Um, for some reason, People are more likely in, in, in the market for a kitten or a cat. They're going to go to a shelter or just uh, you know, go through a rescue or whatever. A lot of people in the market for a dog will commonly get it from a breeder. That's just the, a, a big difference. But everything I'm going to talk about with dogs applies to cats as well. So um, you have a dog come through the door. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, a puppy, a new puppy. I'm going to tell you there's about a 50 to 75% chance that when I go through my vaccine protocols with that particular owner, um, they are going to refute one part of the vaccine protocols as far as how we implement them specifically with leptospirosis. Again, 55, or 50 to 75% of the time, they're going to mention to me, well, my breeder said I shouldn't get the leptospirosis. And then, of course, I asked them, oh, okay. And what was the rationale for that? And they say, well, they said it's dangerous. Dangerous in what way? And they'll give me all manner of possible side effects that the breeder said could happen, most of which are completely in left field. Um, the, the, the most recent interesting one I heard is that it causes seizures. <laughs> it's like, really? I've never seen any vaccine in my 22 years of practice cause a seizure. So that's a new one. That's, I, that's a good one. Um, and then I also hear, well, okay, well, maybe maybe it's not as dangerous as my breeder led me to believe, but it's probably just not necessary because my dog's not going to be an outdoor dog, and my dog uh, doesn't live in a rural environment or near the woods, or is not a hunting dog. I'm like, okay, well, believe it or not, you, being in an urban and suburban environment increases the risk of leptospirosis uh, incredibly because of the fact that it's spread by the urine of infected rodents, namely squirrels, rats, and mice. And the reason we see leptospirosis more in urban and suburban environments is because where there's more people, there's more rats and mice. They opportunistically want to be in urban and suburban environments, as we all well know, 
go near the dumpster of any restaurant in the back and you as you walk by you'll see rats and mice scattering everywhere and with these rodents comes the potential that they're infected with this um, particular bacteria it doesn't make them sick they're asymptomatic carriers but when they do urinate it could end up in fresh standing water and be able to live in the environment for seven days and if you're if your dog licks that contaminated puddle or stream or pond or lake, guess what? Gets infected, we're looking at a 30% mortality rate with treatment. And by the way, that treatment's gonna cost a fortune because you have to go to an isolation facility because no general clinic is gonna hospitalize a leptospirosis patient. It's a major infectious disease that you just can't have in a general clinic. You need an isolation facility. Not even gonna tell you what that costs. So. That stated, we still don't want that vaccine because the reactivity of it, by the way, it's less reactive than rabies is. Rabies has a higher reactivity rate, not causing seizures, mind you, but has a higher reactivity rate than leptospirosis. But we don't hear many people throwing up red flags about that. I don't know where this came from, but you know, the lepto thing, it's, I deal with it so commonly, it's what, it's what comes to mind first, but just in general, like this is just an example of them not knowing what they're talking about just pulling things out of left field i don't know why they do it maybe they want to feel more important than just a person that can throw two animals together mate them and sell the offspring they want to be some kind of expert quote unquote whatever the case is just you know, give your veterinarian the benefit of the doubt that they may know a little bit more about medicine than the breeder does <laughs> um so that's that's uh Resolution number two. Resolution number three. Um, let, let's not be so, I don't want to say hostile, but resistant to the concept of doing preventatives on your pets. Um, parasitic infestations, whether they're endoparasites inside the body or they're ectoparasites outside the body like um, fleas, ticks, mange, um, they, they, mites is another one. They, they're, they're bad. And some of them are really bad. Some of them are deadly. And when we're using these preventatives, you know, some people will see them as we're putting chemicals into my pet. Well, they're compounds, you know, to be sure they're compounds, but, um, they're micro doses. What we're trying to kill here is, um, I'm going to give heartworm as an example. Uh, it's a, it's a little tiny larvae. It's so small, it lives in the gut of the mosquito. And when it gets injected, that's how it gets in the bloodstream of the dog or the cat. And dogs are the more definitive hosts, and so cats can get heartworm. It leads to a different consequence. I won't get into that too much, but it's not good. Uh, it's worse for dogs because that is the definitive host, and the worm colonizes and multiplies, and heart fills full of these worms over time. So the, what we dose to dogs to, um, and, and cats of course, to kill this, this infective larvae, you have a certain window of opportunity to kill this thing before it can advance to a stage of larval development where um, the preventatives don't work and then you're breaking out much more invasive treatments. It's such a tiny dose. It doesn't take much because this thing is so tiny. What we treat with are what are called macrocytic lactones. Macrocytic lactones are compounds uh, that uh, specifically target certain types of larval development in, in worm parasites. In this case of 
heartworm, it's, it's the microfilaria. Um, it takes such a tiny dose to do that, that it is virtually harmless. Yes, you can open up an insert and, and read about all kinds of bad stuff that can happen, but you know everything has to be reported via the FDA and side effects are like nominal. However, your dog or cat gets heartworms, that's serious. And now we're beyond the stage of preventative medication working. So, you know, I wouldn't consider it a, a chemical. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is a compound. Yes, it is synthesized, uh, but these things came out of nature. They came out of soil. Um, when you look at uh, the, the, the most recent, um, or the, let's say the more recent flea and tick preventatives, I call them the lanners, a foxolaner, floralaner, and um, seralaner. <laughs> um, and those are taken internally. And people especially have a problem with those because they're not topical. They're taken actually internally. And you know people are accustomed to uh, the older generation products like Frontline and Advantage that go on the skin and they translocate and, and work that way. Well, the lanners actually came out of nature. They were, um, it was discovered that there were certain types of um, plant life that was devoid of insects and a closer look at the uh, the soil that these these certain types of plants grew out of determined that there was bacteria in the soil that that contained these compounds and this was in nature so basically these pharmaceutical companies said okay well let's mass produce these this bacteria let's let's extract this substance that is creating this um, super safe and infinitely more effective than any topicals have ever been. And in the case of ticks, ticks can, can transmit pretty serious disease like Lyme disease up north, um, anaplasmosis and ehrlichiosis down here, that can cause serious consequences to the health of the pet. Um, in the case of cats, uh, they can, through fleas, they can, they can acquire, actually both dogs and cats can acquire uh, tapeworms from the gut of the flea, um, but cats specifically can get a, a pretty uh, virulent bacteria called Bartonella felis. And so there's a lot of good reasons to prevent this stuff, to prevent the critters internally and externally. And the risk is so overwhelmingly low that it just, for us veterinarians, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make sense to consider it like a toxin um, that you're putting in this patient. I mean, I take Crestor, um, it's a statin because I've had high cholesterol for the last 10 years. And my, my internist finally told me, Hey, look, Roger, <clears throat> you um, you're not getting rid of this naturally. You're taking omega-3 fatty acids. You eat well. You exercise like crazy. This is a genetic problem, and the statin risk is relatively low. Um, but the risk of your cholesterol continuing at this level is going to be very high as you get older. And um, I don't want to see you, you know, have serious consequences because you don't want to take the statin. You know what? I'm taking the statin. So that's that's where I'm at. That's one of my 2024 own personal resolutions is to get my cholesterol down, um, finally bite the bullet and take the statin. So, you know, I know it's not the same comparison, these preventatives, but uh, so much disease and so much, so much problems that we see are the result of these parasites because our pets are just more susceptible to them. They're, they're lower to the ground. They are, they go outside to potty. Some cats go indoor, outdoor, some cats that don't go outdoor, but live with dogs that go indoor, outdoor. The susceptibility is there and I see the consequences of it all the time. So try to have a bit more of an open mind and have an open discussion with your vet and, and um, you know, really, really talk about the, the relatively very, very, very low risk compared to the reward of being parasite free.
both internally and externally. And my last resolution is please try to be kind to your veterinary medical staff. Um, it's been a long, well-known fact for many years that veterinary medicine, as far as um, graduate degree professions, have the highest level of suicide rate. It used to be dentists, and somewhere in like 2015 or thereabout, it, veterinary medicine overtook the suicide rate. Um, it's a multifactorial situation. Um, it's to a level, though, that there is now an organization called Not, Not One More Vet, where veterinarians starting to feel the, the, the depression or what it is, whatever it is it takes them to making a decision like that, um, a place where they can go get help. Um, you know, veterinarians come out of school uh, idealistic. You think that every animal is going to be amenable to treatment, <laughs> not wanting to take your jugglers out. You feel that you're always going to be dealing with just wonderful people who absolutely love their pets. You feel that people are going to appreciate your expertise. Um, and you also think that, okay, well, I'm going to be a doctor. I should, I should be able to handle these student loans that I took out. And when all that doesn't pan out and you have financial stress and compassion fatigue and you have clients that don't always treat you well, um, animals trying to kill you, <laughs> that's not an exaggeration, um, losing patients, performing euthanasia, um, being accused of because a person has to pay for your services, being all about the money and you don't care about animals. I don't care who you are. It it, it stings, and it takes its toll. Um, and I'm going to say the same applies to our our veterinary technical staff. These ladies and men. They toil all day long. Their job is hard. That's why I make such a big deal of Tech Week, because I appreciate them so much. It's a physically taxing job, much like Paula's grooming job. It's physical. You rarely see a technician still being a technician after you know, over well over the age of 40 because their body is so broken down and beat up. I know many in their mid-30s that are already have, you know, torn rotator cuffs, bad backs, tendonitis, all kinds of stuff from doing their job, but they do it because they love it. They love the patients. They love healing them, treating them. They're the front line. They, they take the history. Um, they assist the doctor. The doctor performs surgery recommends the treatments, but in the end, it's the, it's the technicians that have hand on, hands on the patient far more than we do. And unfortunately, they commonly bear the initial brunt of disgruntled clients. For whatever reason, they'll go after them first. They're, they're more inclined to mistreat them than they are the doctors. Um, and it, it's very hurtful to them because they, they work very, very, very hard and um, their, their, their hearts in it. They make maybe a quarter to one third of what an RN makes on the human medicine side. And they, they, they do that because of the fact that they care so much about the profession that they work in and they're grateful for it. So during the COVID bubble around 2021, um, 
it was the hardest time for veterinary medicine. It's, it really hasn't gotten any easier, but the whole curbside situation um, made things challenging, especially here in Florida. It's like a million degrees out in the summer, and these technicians are having to run these pets out, uh, you know, the, the cats in their, in their carriers. Some, some people feel the need to put their cats in these obscenely large carriers, which is especially interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, running the dogs in and out, um, having quadruple the caseload because everybody's lonely now. Um, we're isolated and everyone's going out to get pets to fulfill that, that loneliness and what they were missing from having human contact. These are all good things. More animals got homes. We were happy about that. But the level of caseload, the level of frustration really, really um, skyrocketed more than I'd ever seen it before. And it has calmed down, but you know, you still get these situations where something didn't go the right way and client feels that it's okay to mistreat a staff member or sometimes even the veterinarian him or herself. So what I'm asking all of you, and this is, I say this one for last, is that um, please don't hurt our staff. Um, do you reserve the right to hold us accountable? Yes, you do. Um, are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are there oversights? Yes, there are. Are there miscommunications? Yes, there are. And it's absolutely your right as a consumer and as an advocate to your pet to point these things out. But I ask that you do so in a respectful way. If you're not getting the satisfaction that you wish to get before amplifying the situation, ask to talk to the manager. You know what? I don't think we're getting this figured out. May I please have a word with your manager? My manager will gladly come out and talk to anyone privately and resolve whatever the situation is. Um, we're all doing our best and we're not perfect. And when you are doing your best and you get mistreated, it can hurt. Um, and it could even lead to a tragic consequence. Not one more vet. Just always be aware of that, okay? Thank you for your attention and time tonight. Thank you for listening to my top pet resolutions for 2024. I hope you're all off to a great start of your year, and I thank you for tuning in. always appreciate my listenership, and I'm always humbled by how many, how many people out there actually care about what I have to say. Have a great rest of your day. I will talk to you soon.